Well, the week before Thanksgiving, I was flying back from Los Angeles, and it was about halfway through the flight when I started feeling poorly. By the time we landed, I was in considerable pain. Um, and I'll spare you the details, but the short version of the story is 12 hours later, I had my gallbladder removed. Um, all in all, it wasn't a bad experience, wasn't a good one either, but um, it just meant the consequence was I couldn't teach that Sunday, and thank you, Kara Koffler, for filling in at a moment's notice. What that trip to the hospital meant, though, was that we didn't finish the series that we had been in this last fall on the book of Jeremiah. And uh, so as a way of kicking off the new year, we're going to go back to Jeremiah just for one week. And I think actually what he has to say is pretty appropriate. So we're going to learn from our friend Jeremiah one more time and finish things up and kick off the new year at the same time. Now, first, a little bit of a summary of this book, because I know some of you weren't here either for all of it or any of it, and it's a very long book. In fact, word count-wise, it's the longest book in the Bible. The people of Judah had been bad. They'd been very bad. And instead of worshiping God, they were worshiping the gods of their neighbors. Instead of living good lives, they were sexually immoral and greedy and many other things. And instead of justice, they had mistreated the poor and the vulnerable. Consequently, Jeremiah warned them that judgment was coming. Now, the book of Jeremiah operates on more than one time horizon at the same time. And one time horizon is the very right here and now, the very present. Because of their wickedness, Jeremiah tells them God is going to judge them. Early on, Jeremiah called on the people to repent, told them to turn from their idolatry, their unrighteousness, their injustice, and return to God. If they did, he said God would forgive them, renew the commitment that he had to them as a nation. But they refused. So he told them he was going to allow the dreaded Babylonians to defeat them and carry off more than 50,000 of their citizens to Babylon. So the stories we're going to look at today really take place probably even while the Babylonians have circled, encircled Jerusalem. But his message wasn't all doom and gloom because he also talked about a time horizon just a little bit in the future, 70 years from them, when he said they would return to the land. So he said, many of you are going to go away to Babylon, but you will return. And it's the second time horizon that begins Jeremiah's words of hope. When they return, he tells them things will be different. The fortunes of the nation will change completely. They will not only live in the land, they will prosper. Not only will they be there, they'll be politically independent because their neighbors will not control them. He told them to expect a time of peace and quiet, a time of health and prosperity. You will be my people and I will be your God because he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And he tells them, I will not forget the blind and lame and the pregnant mothers. Tears of joy will stream their faces and I will lead them home. It was a message of hope given them in the midst of a national calamity. The land that God had given them was no longer theirs. The temple where God was said to dwell had been flattened. And in a day when wars between nations were not just wars between two armies, but two gods, their God, they believed, had let them down. So it's no wonder that they were distraught. In the short term, things were in shambles. But he tells them, one day you're going to return. It won't be, though, however, in your lifetime. So you can hardly blame them if these words sounded somewhat hollow, because few of them, if any, would be alive when this promise was fulfilled. The idea of trusting God for the long haul isn't something that came easily for them, and it doesn't come easily for us either. But it's integral to what it is to be a follower of God, to be able to experience and trust God with the future is what, part of what it means to be a Christian. 
Now, I know not, not everyone here today would call yourselves Christians. In fact, I know that some of you are skeptical of the claims that Christians make. For example, you may think, well, heaven sounds like a great idea, but since it can't be proved, it may just be a big pie-in-the-sky fantasy. And I get it. It's hard to base your life on something that can't be fully proved. And there's a lot I could say here, but let me just to look partly at the book of Jeremiah, that I do think that one of the things that he does here helps us in this regard. That is because the 70-year claim that he makes took place. 70 years later, the people did return to the land. They were restored to it, and they prospered. And that's not the only promise that God made to his people that actually came true, which brings us to an even longer time horizon, and that is a time horizon about 600 years in the future. While Jeremiah may not have fully understood even what he was writing or the significance of what he was writing, his words would later be understood to carry great weight and significance because in them he pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you some words that Jeremiah wrote almost at the end of his public ministry. And just to recall the context, if you've been with us, and if you haven't, let me just tell you that the king at this point is a man named Zedekiah. He's the very last king of Judah. After this, there are no more kings. And he's on the way out. So Jeremiah writes these words just probably as King Nebuchadnezzar and his troops have surrounded the city. And he's talking about something that's to come 70 years from now. I want you to listen to the words of Jeremiah found in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 6. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can on pages, uh, beginning on page 1180, page 1180, although the words are also on the screen. Let me read, beginning with Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment upon you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may have already picked this up, maybe from other times when you've read bits of the Old Testament or heard it taught, um, or even just from this text. And that is that one of the metaphors for leadership in the Old Testament is that of a shepherd. But Jeremiah starts with some very harsh words for the shepherds, the leaders that they had at this time. He says, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Now the word woe is really an exclamation word, kind of like ugh or yuck or something like that. It's, it's a word that signifies sadness and sorrow as well as anger about something terrible and tragic. And the tragedy here is that those who should be leading the nation well have instead scattered or even destroyed them. And that's exactly what is happening. Judah's leaders have been so negligent that King Nebuchadnezzar has come and he's going to take some of the people back to Babylon. That's the scattering part. And actually, even further scattering, some of them will be driven off and living in nations nearby. And the fault lies with these corrupt leaders of Judah for the evil that they have done. Consequently, he says, I'm going to 
punish you, and eventually I will replace you with much better leaders. He's going to gather the people to the land. That's the 70 years, that second time horizon that we just talked about. And when it happens, he says, the people will no longer need to fear, and they will flourish. But Jeremiah is not finished because he still has something more to say. And this has to do with the third time horizon. The hope that they have that they don't know will be fulfilled, but about 600 years in the future. When an even greater king than David would one day come. And I want to reread the words of Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6 because this is where he talks about this promise. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right and just in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. So again, Jeremiah is looking forward to a day 70 years hence when they will return to the land. And he predicted they'll have much better leaders than they currently have. But he's also describing a king like no other king. And it's when Jesus came on the scene that people began to make the connection. The people of Israel began to make connections between the one that Jeremiah described and Jesus. And Jesus himself made this connection by describing himself as a shepherd. Let me read to you from John chapter 10, one of the biographies of Jesus, beginning with verse 14, where Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life for the sheep, only to take it up again. No one takes from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Jesus would turn out, the early Christians understood, to be the Lord, our righteous Savior, the fulfillment of God's promise to the nation. Like the good shepherd Jeremiah, he too opposed the poor leaders, those who failed to lead well. He said, I will gather those who are scattered and help them to prosper. So the words of Jeremiah chapter 23 helped the earliest followers of Jesus understand who he was. Let me give you one other example from the biographies of Jesus. And this one takes place after Jesus has fed about 4,000 men, and then it says also women and children. So we don't know. It could have been as many as 10,000 or more people that Jesus fed. It was an event that literally put Jesus on the map. And shortly after that great event, Jesus asked his disciples a question in Matthew chapter 16. He said this, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is is Jesus himself. And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, because of what they saw in Jesus, and in this case, it's revealed to, to, uh, to Peter, probably, well, by the Holy Spirit, but they wondered whether Jeremiah had been resurrected or one of the other prophets. They'd never seen anyone like Jesus. And so they went back to the stories that they had been told and began to make these connections. Now, the earliest Christians didn't have what we call the New Testament. They only had the Hebrew Bible. 
Even though they didn't have the biographies of Jesus that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, even though they didn't have the history of the early Christian church, a book we call Acts because, frankly, they were living it out, um, and even though they didn't have the letters of Paul and Peter and John, didn't mean that they were clueless because they had the inspired writings in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that God had already given his people. Now, I've got to tell you that some today are uncomfortable with the Old Testament. In fact, some, even some who would call themselves Christians, would rather focus exclusively on the New Testament. And I get it. There are some uncomfortable stories in the Old Testament. There are parts that are difficult to understand and others that are difficult to accept. And the stories of God's judgment and all the blood and gore is tough for us to reconcile with the idea of a God of love. Now, that can lead then to a misconception that some have, and that is that there are two gods, that there's the Old Testament God and a New Testament God, that one is mean and cruel and does nasty things, and the other is loving and kind and does only good. But the earliest Christians would disagree with that portrayal. They understood that God was both loving and just. He's merciful and compassionate and good and faithful. In fact, in Jesus, what they saw was a perfect blending, a balance between love and justice, both of which we need. If you read the biographies of Jesus, you'll find a lot about the love of God. It's a common theme, common message that Jesus had. And yet he isn't all warm and cuddly all the time as some believe him to be. Jesus had harsh words for those who mistreated the poor. He spoke severely to those who got their priorities mixed up. And he was unyielding as to the sort of standards that he expected of them. The sort of standards you might find, say, in the Ten Commandments. In fact, in one of the part sections of the Bible that many skeptics say they love, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is often take a commandment and then just take it up a notch. So not only don't commit adultery, but don't look on a woman with lust. You know, don't just don't commit murder, but don't be angry with someone as well. He takes these things to a whole new level. The reason why it's so important to mention this, this connection between the Old and New Testament, if it's not strong then the words of Jeremiah are not all that important. The words of Jeremiah 23 show us that what took place was a fulfillment of a 600-year-old prediction. And if we understand that remarkable reality, that well in advance of Jesus' arrival, that he was predicted, he was promised, we begin to see that this connection is incredibly important. It gives us confidence to trust in our personal lives that God has our eternal destiny in his hands. If he can take care and make predictions that take place later, much later, then maybe he can take care of our lives. That trusting our futures in his hands is a worthy bet. Let me mention one other time. Uh, this is just one of several others. But one other time when Jesus makes a startling prediction. And this, or excuse me, Jeremiah makes a startling prediction that we see fulfilled in Jesus. And this is in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to read to you verses 31 to 34 from Jeremiah 31. Again, you want to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 1197. Although, again, the words will be on the screen. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. 
Now, what he's referring to here when he talks about a new covenant is, first of all, an old covenant. That's the one that Moses gave them. And they had great difficulty keeping that covenant. In fact, the first 29 chapters of the book of Jeremiah are really details about their rebellion against those commandments. If it weren't for the grace of God, they would have been wiped out long before. But here, God's letting them know that as angry as he is with them right now, and for good reason, he has plans for them. A plan to give them a new covenant. The most famous part, and probably the most inspiring part, is what he writes in verse 33. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This idea of putting law in their minds and writing on their hearts are parallel statements. They mean very similar things. But there are some subtle differences. In the first one, I will put my law on their minds. He's talking about, by laws, he's talking about the teachings. Um, And it's about our minds, the inward um, part, cognitive, intellectual part of our lives. It's the seat of the thoughts in our lives. And then he says, I will write it on their hearts. Now, we think of the heart as the place of emotion, and so did they. But they also thought of it as the place where we have the will or the volitional part of our lives, the place where decisions are made. So what Jeremiah wanted them to know is the first covenant was a lot more about behavior, but the second covenant is about the inner transformation of their minds and their hearts and their wills. And then he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. And in that phrase, there's something Jeremiah is talking about and there's something that he's not talking about. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. He He says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. That doesn't mean that God can't remember our sins. You know, it's not like forgetting your keys and where you put them or going to the grocery store like every once in a while my wife will ask me to do and I forget the one thing, you know, I come home with, without the one thing she told me to get. Um, the text doesn't mean that God can't recall at all what's been done. The word remember here means to commemorate. And the idea is that God can, will no longer mention the act of sin for the purpose of punishment. The emphasis is on the idea that the forgiveness is permanent. You know, sometimes you, you, you'll have a friendship um, with someone who seems to always remember the one thing you really did that you shouldn't have done, the thing that you regret, and it's like they have a scorecard mindset, and there's nothing you can do to ever erase that. Well, God remembers the things that we've done, but the forgiveness is permanent. He releases us from the effects of that. So the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about is one that extends to anyone, a covenant that God offers to each one of us. The people of Israel had messed up. They'd messed up bad. Yet God had a plan for their restoration, a plan for their forgiveness. Now, not long after God inspired Jeremiah to write these words, he would find himself sitting in a jail cell, locked up because the people didn't like what he had to say. And while he sat, the city was encircled by this invading army, the army that Jeremiah would knew would destroy the city, flatten the temple, and carry the people off to Babylon. And the whole thing was their fault. Their disobedience, their idolatry, their injustice over generations was something God could no longer ignore. And God used Jeremiah to communicate to them this bad news. They didn't like what he said. That's why he was in jail. My guess is that Jeremiah continued, though, not only to talk about the punishment that was to come, but also the hope that they could anticipate. This new covenant, one not simply based on religious practices, but based on changed hearts. A covenant that we now understand is given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a reality that Jeremiah could only vaguely imagine. Now, let me just transition here to say that, uh, as Amy mentioned earlier in the announcement time, this is a New Year's resolution time of the year when we start setting goals for the year. 
And I want to challenge you to think about a resolution you may not have considered. And, and I know that probably some of you have set a goal for exercising more or losing a little weight or you know, getting rid of that credit card debt or reading a book a month or something like that. But I'd like to challenge you to set a spiritual goal for the year. And let me explain by using this card you'll find in your program. And one side of it says the journey. I'd like you to just look at that if you can with me. Um, it's a, a diagram that I have drawn dozens and dozens of times in Caribou's and Starbucks and other places. Um, and what it assumes is that we are all personally on a spiritual journey. We're all trying to figure this God thing out. We're just in different places along that continuum. Now, it's not always a linear path, but there are some stages and some common points along the way. And there may have been a time, maybe years ago, when you were relatively hostile toward God. It, either you didn't believe or didn't like the God that you uh, understood him to be. But maybe that transitioned to a time of indifference where you just said, whatever, I, I don't know if I care. And then maybe there was a stage of skepticism where you began to ask some questions. You don't have an answer, but maybe you're just trying to figure things out to a stage of curiosity where you're asking questions more intently and really seeking the answers, having a desire to learn. That stage may transition into a time of actively seeking, taking a more intentional step to ask questions of friends or to read books or to do other things, to try to figure out what to put in the box of faith in your life. That's that box at the top of the, of the diagram. That seeking faith stage can lead to figuring out what it is that you are going to put at the center of your life, the, the religious tradition or faith philosophy that you want to put in there to ground your life in. Now, it continues with a live-it stage where we commit to see our beliefs lived out on a daily basis. But the New Year's resolution I want to suggest is wherever you might put yourself along on this line, think about taking the next step and making a more active attempt to seek out what you are going to put in the box of faith in your life. Now, if you'll let me, I'd like to describe to you what I've put in my box, my box of faith in my life. And it's really a summary of the story of the Bible, and it's on the other side of the card. So if you want to, you can turn it over. There's also some diagrams on the screen. But the way this story starts, the story of the Bible starts all the way back in the book of Genesis with creation. We're told that God created the world, and it was very good. And then we're told that we have been created in love. Each one of us, we're told, have been created in God's image. And the meaning and significance of that is that it tells us that we as human beings have great dignity, that we're loved. And that's very good news. But there's also some bad news, and that is that we live in a world damaged by evil. And if you don't believe that, just read the paper, watch the news, um, drive around the city. And the humbling part is that each one of us have our own responsibility for that. In our own hearts, we know that we own a piece of that mess. St. Paul put it succinctly by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Everything around us has been damaged by the effects of sin and brokenness in our world, and we're a part of the problem. But the good news is that God did not abandon us. In fact, we have been rescued by God. Paul says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of Jesus in a nutshell. And even more, there's more to come. And that is that the final chapter is that we've been restored for good. God has done more than rescue us. He wants us to be involved in fixing what's broken. Now, that process won't be complete until Jesus returns and we're brought into the new heaven and the new earth. But in the meantime, we do have both a responsibility and a privilege of being able to work to see good restored in the world. 
What we understand from Jeremiah is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah promised. He's the only one who can reconcile us to God. But in order for us to receive this gift, we have to repent and accept his offer of forgiveness. We have to receive the gift that he has offered. In some ways, we're in a very similar situation to that of Jeremiah in his day. Even though he tried, he couldn't repent for the people. They had to do that themselves. He could only lay out what God had offered for them and promised them. So what we need to do is to repent. It's hard to do, to confess our sin and brokenness. But if we do that, we can then put our faith to believe that Jesus is the promised one sent by God to reconcile us to God, to bring us into a relationship with him. We can trust him and then commit to live it out. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God required them, and he requires each one of us personally to repent of our sins and turn to him. No one, not a parent or a friend or a pastor, can do that for you. We need to each do it ourselves. But you know, Jeremiah, all the way back in 600 years before, pointed us to the Lord, our righteous Savior, pointed us to the new covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus. And we can repent, turn to Jesus, and accept the forgiveness that he offers. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful, grateful to Jesus for um, coming, living, and dying. And we're also grateful that this was a promise that had been made many, many years before. Father, we thank you for Jeremiah, who faithfully did and spoke out what God, uh, what you had revealed to him. We thank you for that we have these words, and then it gives us the confidence that we can trust you into the future with our eternal destiny as we put our lives in the hands of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.